So hi, this is Mike Edelhart, and we're here with another uh, edition of Inception, our podcast about beginnings, the beginnings of companies, new ideas, careers, and sometimes even a little peek into uh, the future. And uh, I'm here today with uh, one of my uh, personal uh, favorite uh, CEOs and companies, uh, it's got a little touch of sci-fi about it with an old geek like me always uh, always likes uh, Dalton Combs from uh, uh, Boundless Mind. So very kind I, of you, Mike. Great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here. So uh, uh, w- how long has it been since we invested in you? It's been a while. Time flies, I think. Yeah, at 2015, I think. Yeah, wow. At late 2015, early 2016. Right. I heard rumors that I still had reasonably large amounts of hair back <laughs> then. Uh, uh, but when we first met, uh, uh, different name, some different ideas, and we talk a lot in the fund about how startups succeed through change, but you've been through a lot of change. We've been through a lot of change. Uh, yeah. Uh, Boundless, you know, we, I mean, we were free play at one point and then dopamine when we met and now Boundless Mind. So why those changes? I mean, that's not the only change, maybe not the biggest change, but why the change in names? Yeah, so dopamine, I always loved the name dopamine labs. Um, what I loved about it was that dopamine as a molecule is everything that's great about your life and terrible about your life is that way because of dopamine. Like it has this dual nature and I loved that idea. It's very, and it was very provocative, which was like great for the company for generating PR. Uh, we had to change it over an IP dispute uh, and that was, that was no fun. Um, but the new name is, uh, you know, p- people love the new name. I love the new name. Well, damn their eyes for doing that to you. Um, we dropped sort of into the middle, so maybe we should go back a step before and talk a little about your background because you said that like a scientist, which you are and, uh, why dopamine and, uh, what is it that you guys, uh, that caused you to start the company? And uh, and uh, sort of compare that to exactly what you're doing now. Yeah. So the moment that really set me on this path was uh, when I was in grad school for my PhD in neuroscience. Um, I thought I was going to be working on brain machine interface. So putting electrodes in people's heads or in animals heads and looking at the firing of action potentials. And I did that for a few years. And then at a conference, someone showed me this thing they were really proud of, which was basically a remote controlled cockroach. So it's, you put some electrodes in the animal's head and you can kind of steer it around with a RC uh, car controller. And to show how good the control had gotten, they compared it to an animal that had undergone classical conditioning that had undergone, that had learned to run this maze using uh, reward learning and using these behavioral methods. And what they wanted me to see was that their remote control was like really good. But what I saw in the comparison was that there was this whole world of behavioral control that was way better than anything we had seen in um, with these electrodes. And like that was really striking to me because it it meant that these technologies of control, these brain control technologies had arrived early. Like we didn't have to wait for the electrodes and that that kicked me down this road that, that created this urgency that like, wow, we need to figure out how these technologies are going to be used and, and to make sure that they come into the world in a responsible way. 
And so uh, 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 when I first uh, met you guys, you had these uh, really dramatic uh, early uh, apps that showed this. And, and uh, so talk about those and, and, and talk maybe a little bit about the science, because you're not putting electrodes in people's heads. You're not right. putting Dr. Zarkov yeah. helmets on <laughs> folks. You aren't, uh, you know, creating pod people here. So uh, talk a little bit more about uh, just what's really going on and, and what the product is. Yeah. So the goal of the company is to make change easy. We want to make it really easy for people to reprogram themselves and become the people that they want to be. Our very initial case studies uh, were on uh, physical fitness and physical rehab. So keeping people physically active after surgery is really important for uh, wound healing and making sure they're not rehospitalized. And we did a case study with a, a company where we increased the amount of time people spend walking after surgery by 60%, which is just in the world of uh, marketing automation or any kind of SaaS for changing people's behavior is an absolutely ridiculous effect size. And like that was another big moment for us was realizing that like this different approach worked and it was really effective. And the, the, what we were doing that was different came out of, you know, what I saw in those conditioning studies where if you know enough about someone's environment, uh, you can predict how small changes will impact their long-term future behavior and you can build habits into people and you can uh, change people's behavior completely. And so that's what our, our initial product was. Uh, you know, this is AI wasn't a hot term back then. Like it hadn't caught on fire yet. And so it was an algorithm for uh, figuring out when and how to communicate with a user in order to change their long-term behavior. And, you know, we've gone under a, the core concept of designing products that make it easy for companies to change their users' behavior. It's still what we do, but it's gotten a lot more sophisticated and a lot more um, product-focused from those early, like, hey, we found a neat algorithm days. So this sounds a little bit like mind control. This sounds a little bit like the Manchurian candidate that uh, everybody thinks they're at the garden party because you want them to think they're at the garden party. And as a result, they feel a certain way. Um, is it actually that spooky? Uh, it is that powerful. I wouldn't <laughs> say it's that spooky. Uh, the The important thing to keep in mind about like and why we're doing this and what it means for this technology to come into the world in the right way is about power and it's about control and it's about freedom and it's about who has the right to decide who gets controlled and who gets designed and who has the ability to do the designing. And so you know, one of the really important principles of the company is making sure that uh, these techniques are always used to help users become the people that they want to be as opposed to um, just another way to make technology addictive. And, uh, and you did an app early on that essentially uh, truncated the desire that led to game addiction and, and other kinds of mobile. Yeah, so this addictions. was something uh, that we did. You know, our main product is about generating habits, increasing habits. Uh, but we also made a direct-to-consumer product called Space that breaks app addiction. And it uses the exact same uh, AI on the back end that the habit formation product does, 
but instead of using rewards and praise to construct habits, it uses small pauses and delays in the user interface to break video game addiction, to break Facebook addiction, to break and help people feel like they're more in control of the way they relate to their technology. And so in creating these rewards and in creating this process, is it a matter of timing? If you do it at just the right time, like the satisfaction that might come from a you know, addictive cadence in music? Is it words that if I understand that this is a power word for you, I can sort of wake your brain up and the next thing that goes in, your brain is absorbing sort of without getting too far into the oobleck. <laughs> uh, uh, give folks who may not be neuroscientists or uh, uh, be familiar with this a sense of just sort of what you're doing. Yeah, so the here. number one thing that shapes people's behavior um, is how rewarding uh, their environment feels. And constantly as we're navigating the world, we're getting small rewards from the environment. And each of those rewards uh, shapes our future behavior. You get a reward, it makes you, at a, at a mechanical subliminal level, your brain tries to decode what it was that caused you to get that reward. And then it rewires itself to try to get more of that in the future. Um, and this is a very mechanical, very automatic process that your brain undergoes. And like, that's what we're modeling is how does a reward impact someone's wanting and how does that wanting show up in their behavior as a way to measure it? Uh, and what is that wanting going to do to their long-term behavior? So, um, uh, so where, so far in the company's history, have you, uh, applied this in, real life. So uh, uh, where have been the use cases so far and where do you think the real use cases for this uh, uh, are likely to be uh, relatively near term? Yeah, when we originally met, the goal of the company, like the day-to-day -day operating objective was to figure out where this worked and where it was most effective and, and what markets really needed it. Uh, and that, that was our focus. And you know, we've tested it in healthcare, in fitness, in e-commerce, in education, uh, in driving behaviors, in uh, enterprise productivity, all over the place. We found really good effect sizes everywhere and we've learned a lot about the markets. You know, some of the, some of the ones that have kind of floored me in what they're able to achieve is we did a case study with a large insurance company where we showed that we could get people to touch their phone 15% less while driving. Hmm. Um, and that's, you know, right. d distracted driving kills more people than drunk driving now. And so that change is, can be transformative for the human condition, right? Like very, like fewer people died on the road because of that intervention. Uh, another one that, you know, blows my mind is, you know, we can increase medical adherence, getting people to take medication on time by more than 40%. Uh, and that has tremendous outcomes for chronic conditions, getting people to take medication on time. I think that in the medium term, the biggest markets for the company uh, are going to be medical and um, subscription media, which, you know, I'm from LA, so we use the term media a little bit differently than most people. Like subscription media includes Coursera, Udacity, um, any of these subscription education products is a subscription media company deep down in the core of the accounting department. And so those companies um, really benefit from 
uh, our way of thinking and, and so do uh, medical companies. And then the longer term, I think enterprise productivity. So helping people be slightly more productive in the office um, and know like when they're on and when they're not so that they're able to like control their own stress, uh, I think is going to be a, a big part of the company. Got it. So I remember when I first uh, started getting to know you guys, uh, it was uh, almost like uh, uh, the uh, indie movie version of uh, a startup. I mean, here you all were crammed into a beach house in Two-car garage. With, <laughs> yeah, with literally the garage in the back. There were AI scrawls and uh, flow charts all over the wall of this garage and you had a hibachi up on the roof and yeah uh, uh it was great yeah we still work out of the office it's a great office um yeah it's a five bedroom house and it's yeah like you said it's got a barbecue we got a garage that uh we can work out of i don't know if you know the whole story of like what was going on in the house the first time we met and i'm thinking about it. i don't know if you've ever heard this story uh i may not have so so go ahead and share it yeah, with everybody yeah. <laughs> we were uh we were hanging out in the kitchen uh, you know, talking about brain control and the future of behavior change. And one of our roommates at the time was in the back of the house getting ready for Burning Man. And for her, <laughs> that meant doing uh, a poison dart frog ceremony. So she had her shamana over and there was, they were drumming um, and they were, you know, doing hallucinogens and all this stuff in the in the back of the house there while we were out front. And they, they told us about this in the morning. And she was like, just so you know, I'm having a friend over. And I was like, okay, just so you know, we're having an investor over, so <laughs> you can keep it down. Um, so yeah, and they, that's one of the great things about being in Venice is like proximity to that particular flavor of craziness. It is very energizing. It, it, it felt that way. I mean, it didn't feel like a, a drug party said... <laughs> a guy who's old enough and hippie enough to remember <laughs> drug parties. But uh, it really had a feel that's largely gone from the Bay Area of just a bunch of folks getting together to bang away at it, feeling like they're, they got in their hands on something really remarkable and and just kind of riding the wild bronco uh yeah it's, uh, it's easier to be like poor and enthusiastic in <laughs> in la <laughs> than it is in sf right now uh so you know you're like living on grad student stipends working out of a garage um and making a, a bet on pers nothing more than personal conviction like is, is a lot easier in la than it is in sf right now yeah yeah, and so we've seen a lot of teams going down that way. I mean, Stanford graduation, they pile in the van and down they go. Uh, and Asian teams going to L.A. because uh, they're more comfortable culturally and weather-wise than they are in San Francisco where yeah. it rose to a, you know, scorching 66 today or whatever. Almost, I almost took off my Patagonia walking around outside. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, L.A. is a tremendously diverse city. Um, it's, a, it's a great place to to live and work. Um, I think it's, I think it's a great startup city. Um, it used to be, you know, ads and 3d graphics, but now it's a, you know, it's a full blown tech city now. Yeah. It's our fastest growing geo for a lot of reasons. Uh, so, you know, I said, when I met you guys, so at the beginning there were two of you, I mean, there was a whole team, Yeah, but yeah, there yeah. were two of you sort of in this, like, brothers almost it sort of felt that way you were literally one of those founding duos that were kind of 
finishing each other's sentences. Yeah, we're very, very hip to hip. Um, and now there's just you. Yeah. Uh, you know, he decided that the, the startup life, you know, the founder life wasn't really working for him. Um, and uh, yeah, we decided that we had to split. Um, I'm really proud of the way the team rallied around that moment. It was a very difficult moment um, for the company, um, but it it caused a lot of people to step up in some really great ways um, and really expanded the company beyond like the co-founders plus people, and it became like a stronger whole. And what about you? It must have been rough to lose your brother from another mother. Yeah. That way, whatever the cause. Yeah. I mean, we're still friends. Um, but yeah, it was a very difficult moment um, in my life. My my girlfriend said at the time said um, that it seemed like someone had died, like just in the way I was, the way I was around the house, um, the way I was with other people. Uh, you know, she told me it looks like you're grieving. Like it, I'm trying to figure out who died kind of thing. Um, so it was a very... Very serious moment. Also, obviously, like a very big gut check moment for me with respect to the company, right? Because that that's the kind of event that uh, kills a lot of startups. Uh, when when one founder decides that's not what they want to be doing anymore, um, it can collapse a company. Um, yeah. And yeah, you know, it took me a little while to to make up my mind on that point. Um, but I'm, you know, very glad that I stuck with it and, uh, you know, all the customers and team members that we've found since then, um, I think have validated that, that choice. And I'm, I'm really glad it went the way it did. So when we invested and we weren't alone, you've got a lot of really, uh, interesting, uh, I would say some of the more advanced and in intellectual and, uh, investors out there saw so, you guys and, and were like, wait a minute. I've been thinking about this for years, and and I now actually see it in the real world for the first time. Uh, but our feeling was, these guys are great. This is amazing. And it might even be true that this is the right time. Yeah, but there, even might, if, there might even be a business here for this. <laughs> yeah, but uh. even, if there's, even if it's not, we're going to learn a lot from you guys. We're going to learn a lot from the company. So I haven't been at it for a while now. Is it the right time? I mean, back then we were undoubtedly early to market. Um, what we wanted to achieve technically was just barely achievable um, when we founded the company. And like that was the inspiring thing for us. It's like, okay, it is technically possible. There's been a lot of changes since then um, in the market that have made it much more viable. So just one example uh, the medical industry is undergoing this transition right now from what's called fee-for-service to what's called bundled payments. And what that means is that instead of writing a check for a Band-Aid and then a check for an IV and then a check for 20 minutes of a surgeon's time and billing piecewise like that, the medical industry is now moved towards a model where an insurer writes one big check to get a whole procedure done and have everything associated with that taken care of. And what that has done is it's unlocked the value in human behavior. So when you're paying piecewise, it doesn't pay to have a patient walk on their hip replacement, right? It's incredibly important for the patient and for healing and for 
their visit to the hospital to be cheap, that they get up and be physically active. But before that transition to bundled payments and other like value-based uh, billing, it just didn't pay. And in that respect, you know, that market is caught up. And then the rise of subscription everything uh, also plays into our vision of the world, uh, that long-term engagement is what matters. Um, yeah, and we're still in the process of meeting the market where it is on its current needs around behavior change. And like, honestly, the way I describe it to people is, you know, we, we climbed up the mountain and we, we visited the future and it works and we've come back and now we need to build the road to, to get the world to that future, right? We have these incredible effect sizes, but in a lot of ways that are difficult to monetize and in a lot of ways that require, uh, PMs and chief product officers and growth teams to think differently about what matters. And it's a paradigm shift that we're trying to bring to the world. And um, yeah, we're still in the process of discovering how we meet the market where it is. So things go as you hope they go. What is this company like five years from now? And what are you like five years from now? In, in five years... Uh, Boundless is the behavior layer of the internet. Uh, we've got a full platform where if a, a company wants to change someone's behavior, they just mark in their app all the things that could be different and they describe how they want users to behave and it happens. Um, and the same thing for users. Users express who they want to be, how they want to be different, and uh, that change just happens at a subliminal level to to both the company and the the individual. It's a lot of small changes that would otherwise go unnoticed, except the fact the way they coordinate and reinforce one another causes this person to to radically change. Um, and five years from now, um, yeah, I'm I think largely filling the same role for the company. I'm I'm doing a lot of sales, doing a lot of uh, like customer need discovery uh, and working closely with the AI team to figure out how to build an intelligence that um, is able to create those changes, right? Sort of the hellscape scenario is that uh, we've created a, a persuasive AI that is way more persuasive than we were expecting. Mm -hmm. And I spend my day job, like I spend my time um, trying to figure out how to keep the genie at least half in the bottle, right? That's another scenario that's very alive to us is that uh, the technology becomes effective before it becomes, the, the term we use is universally effective, where basically the AI, this is going to get a little nerdy, the AI has what the, the, the academic jargon is the requisite variety to completely contain a human mind which means that it is able to, it has enough levers on a person's environment and is smart enough that it knows exactly what changes to make to completely control the thoughts and behavior of a person. The, yeah, the hellscape scenario is that we get to universal control before we have the political and managerial structures in place to manage an AI that's that powerful. 
That's a lot to think about <laughs> and a lot to do. And that was present with you guys right from the beginning, and it's still there uh, now. It's it's a really big thing for us. Um, it and for everyone on the team, uh, it would be trivial for any member of the team to stop working on this and go and double their salary somewhere. Um, these are all incredibly talented people. And they're working on this project both because they see the long-term potential of it, but also in a sense of responsibility that uh, if a less thoughtful team brings this into the world, the outcomes could be very, very bad. And so everyone on the team carries that responsibility of we need to make sure this happens in the right way. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a big part of, of who we are and why we're doing this. Understood. Well, I often say at the end of these conversations, I can't wait to see how it comes out. But in this case, I really <laughs> can't wait to see how uh, it comes out. And in that century, kind of emblematic, we talk at the Fond a lot about unanticipated consequences. Uh, uh, opiates were a wonderful thing. In some ways, they still are a wonderful thing, but they're a horrible thing. Yeah. And when and farmers began harvesting and fermenting tobacco. They weren't trying to hurt anybody. They were trying to relieve the stress of fear and privation and everything that uh, an earlier, harsher time confronted folks with. And uh, you get the good and you have to work to understand and contain the bad. Yeah. We're fortunate to have a lot of really smart people who came before us, like thinking about these problems. Um, probably first and foremost among them is Norbert Wiener, um, and in his fights with um, Chomsky and Skinner in particular, and the three of those um, philosophical minds talking about what it'll be like when this technology gets here and, and how to how to have you know, a human use of human beings that respects dignity and human autonomy. Here's hoping. <laughs> great to talk always. Uh, great to hear about these. We could talk about this uh all afternoon and long into the night, as we have. Uh, but I think we have to stop now. So thanks very much for coming. Great being here, Mike.